Well, good morning, Calvary Church. So I hope that uh, last week you enjoyed Pastor Doug Batchelder as he preached uh, the Word to you. I enjoyed listening to it online, not live, but later. Ten o'clock is too early for me in the morning. But, uh, but it was wonderful. Two things that stood out to me was I really enjoyed the emphasis on making disciples and that that's really the core of what we're about as a church. And then also just the way he illustrated that it's actually a very doable thing, getting this mission done as his church. And so those were a real encouragement to me, and I hope you were encouraged as well. So let me pray, and we'll look today at uh, our passage in Luke. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us, your mercy that is over all of our life, that brought us salvation in Jesus and continues with us throughout this life and into eternity. And we pray this morning that you would guide us as we look into your word. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. So in one church that I served, they had an annual healing prayer service. And part of that annual healing prayer service was a time of teaching. And I would often teach on the biblical truth on how spiritual healing, which is salvation, is connected to physical healing scripturally. And so, for example, one key passage in the Old Testament that is used this way in the New Testament is Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 which says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And then we read in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, this in chapter 8, And when evening had come, they brought to him, to Jesus, many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, quoting this passage I just read, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And then our apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.24 uses the same passage from Isaiah and says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you are healed. And this language of healing is used to talk about salvation because it's a wonderful way to speak about the fullness of our salvation. The fullness of forgiveness, the fullness of cleansing, the fullness of being freed from the power of sin, and ultimately speaking, to the point of ultimate healing of our bodies in the glorious resurrection day. And that's what is being spoken about. But why this language? Why is it written this way? And it's really important for us to understand the theology behind it. It's actually quite simple, although we could expound upon it for a long time. But because of the fall of Adam and Eve, sin and death entered the world of humanity. And this death included a spiritual death, a separation from God because of our sin. It also included physical death, and ultimately it would incur incur an eternal death. But as a result of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, redemption and life comes to us, and there is a spiritual rebirth, and there is a physical resurrection that is coming, and there is an eternal life that awaits us. Now surely at the time of the apostles and the Messiah, it was a unique time in the history of redemption and also a unique time 
for the types and amount of miracles of healing that were performed, and all Christians agree that there was an unusual number of healings and the magnitude was unusual in that day, in that apostolic age. But physical healing continues to some degree, though we may articulate it as Christians differently and we may emphasize it differently in our ministries. But physical healing is always a foretaste. It's always a promise of something even better than that. It's a promise of hope that one day full restoration will come in the resurrection of our bodies in glory. And it also illustrates every time God performs healings in our lives, whether they're very simple ones or very radical ones, they illustrate the radical power of spiritual healing, that that is always a miracle in our life when salvation comes to a soul and a person is forgiven of their sins and given new life. And this is what we're going to witness today in Luke's gospel account about the leper and the paralytic. And so we're back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 12 through 26. And I pray that we would delight ourselves in Jesus, our Savior, today. These stories go together because they really do go together, as you're going to see, in discovering for ourselves that we are to glorify God with joy and amazement over the fact of His authority to cleanse us from sin and to forgive us from sin. So these two famous miracles show the divine authority of Jesus Christ. Verses 12 to 16, Jesus cleanses a a leper of leprosy and sin. And in verses 17 to 26, Jesus heals a paralytic and forgives his sin. So these are well-known stories. They were well-known stories at the time of Luke's writing. They were both recorded by the gospel writer Mark in chapter 1 and 2 and by Matthew in chapters 8 and 9. You know, Luke just finished not too long ago in our study in chapter 4, verse 43, his introduction to Jesus' Galilean ministry that he was starting, and it ends with these words. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, we observe now Jesus preaching and teaching in these other cities. I mean, notice how our first story begins at the very beginning in verse 12. And it came about that while he was in one of those cities. And then in verse 17, and it came about one day that as he was teaching. And so let's look at the first story this morning about Jesus cleansing a leper. We're going to read the stories uh, as they go along so that we can understand the flow of what's happening here. So we begin with the story of the leper. In the first two verses, we see Jesus cleanses him, and then in the final three verses that he restores the leper. So the story starts off, while he was in one of those cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. One of those cities, certain leper, likely heard about, perhaps even seen Jesus before. He falls on his knees, on his face before him in full faith and pleads that Jesus would heal him. The only question is whether or not Jesus would heal him. Jesus didn't heal everybody. And he doesn't heal everybody today. God is under no obligation to heal anybody of anything. And the leper knows this. And he knows his unworthiness. And so he falls down before Jesus and calls him Lord. Lepers knew their position in society at the time. 
It was considered a very strong judgment of God. And lepers were considered filthy, viewed as cursed by God. And it was even thought and talked about as well, if you got leprosy, it must be because you have some great sin that you must have committed. Well, certainly the man was a sinner, because we all are. And maybe something happened because of his sin, but we don't know that part of the story. But leprosy, like any disease, was just part of the experience of life and death in a fallen world. That's the life we live in. That's the world we live in. It's a world of pain and suffering. Perhaps a fairly good analogy would be the stigmatization that goes along with a disease like AIDS. And there are other diseases that carry stigmas with them in social settings. And these lepers were exiled for health reasons, and they were also truly ostracized for their, from the community. There's no healing available for something this severe. And they're forever considered unclean people, and lepers know who they are. Now, leprosy here could be precisely the disease of leprosy, although the biblical word encompasses many other skin diseases. Well, I actually had the privilege a few years ago of visiting a medical mission and a church planting mission among leper colonies in East Asia. And it was a wonderful ministry, and God has been blessing there with salvation, with His Word, and starting new churches among these people in East Asia. So it still exists even though it's remote. The painful disease would involve lesions, swollen areas of skin, especially on the face, affecting the nerves, eventually leads to paralysis and a wasting away and deformity. It's a terrible disease. And this leper calls Jesus Lord, probably speaking more directly and accurately than he even realized at the time. And Jesus has pity on this man. He touches him, speaks cleansing, and immediately the leprosy is gone. You think about it, Jesus didn't even have to touch the man. He could just say the word. But touch communicates compassion, and it communicates that Jesus is so holy he cannot be infected by sin. And he points to himself then, Jesus, by touching this man, that he's the source of healing. I mean, the only other precedent of healing leprosy in the Bible like this was with the story of Elisha. And you remember back in chapter 4, Jesus already preached about this story in the Nazarene synagogue, and they didn't like the story because he accused them of not of being apostates, basically. But in 427, it says, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So just like the demoniac that we've already studied in our book of Luke, just like Peter's mother-in-law, just like the catch of fish that we looked at a couple weeks ago, All three of these stories have one thing in common, and that is Jesus performs all the miracles with just a word. Just a word. He speaks, and it happens. And so then the story continues in verses 14 to 16, and he charged the man to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So Jesus orders this man not to tell anybody about his healing, but simply proceed with the proper procedure that's outlined in the law on how you go about getting restored to the community. And again, this is like Jesus, we've already read about this, his sort of secret approach to unfolding his ministry. And uh, he doesn't want people spreading the news about him so early. 
He wants to pace his own self-disclosure. And he wants to pace the rise of opposition against himself. And besides, he wants to be the one in control. Now, of course, Jesus knows the man's going to fail. And that's exactly the reason Jesus tells him not to say anything. It's part of a plan. And it would temper probably the man's level of sharing with people. But you've heard of planned leaks before, right? You know, when companies want to leak something and see what happens, or a church wants to do that, we, we design planned leaks. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. This is a planned leak to the community about who he is and what he's going to do. In fact, the Gospel of Mark informs us on this story that his disobedient proclamation was quite extensive, and as a result, Jesus couldn't even openly enter into a town. He had to secretly sneak into town and be in the countryside, and then people have to go find him if they want to hear and be healed. Just think what this man would have done if Jesus didn't warn him. It would have been even bigger. You know, we all would do the same thing if we were in that situation. I'd be getting healed of leprosy. No matter what Jesus said, you're going to tell people. But, of course, now, in this point in the history of redemption, there's no secret anymore. We're supposed to be openly proclaiming who Jesus is to the world. And our joy in proclamation, with, an, with a commission from the Lord, should be even greater than this healed leper's joy in proclamation when he's under a gag order from Jesus. And our proclamation should be even bigger. And in a moment, we're going to see the connection even more clearly because He's been healed of way more than leprosy. Well, the law of Moses provided instructions for dealing with leprosy and getting restored to the community. You can read all about it in Luke 13 to 14, if you're inclined to. I mean, not Luke, Leviticus 13 and 14. It's really too extensive to get into now and to get understanding, but you can do it on your own. But the restoration procedure obviously involves the priest and involves the temple, and it takes about a week. It's a very long procedure. Uh, to pronounce the person clean and so that they can safely re-enter the community and re-enter the temple for worship. Now, the phrase, a testimony to them, here, you see that in your passage there? Go tell the priest as a testimony to them is a very curious statement. Because on one level, it could just simply refer to the fact, you know, go to the priests and give them all the proof that they need that you're really cleansed according to the Mosaic law. That's probably one simple idea, but even more likely, it's referring to giving a testimony to them, the priests, about the messianic age to them themselves, because you see, lepers don't get healed, and they certainly don't get healed like this guy got healed, so basically, he's not supposed to tell anybody, but tell the priests exactly what happened as a testimony to them about the fact that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has arrived. We don't know exactly what the man did here, but based upon his other actions, he probably made good on this one. Verse 15 is Luke's way of telling us that the man disobeyed Jesus and spread the news. And of course, the man's not the only reason. He's not the only one to blame for all the crowds and the multitudes following after Jesus. I mean, it's Jesus' own ministry. He's healing people and teaching them the truth of God. And the multitudes themselves are so excited to find out who this Jesus might be that the momentum is building from all different sides. Now, perhaps the most interesting observation in this story is the way it ends. In verse 16, most fascinating verse to me, and that is, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. But you see what's going on in verse 15, but now even more the report about him went abroad. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed. 
and he disappears. He disappears. You notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't work harder. He doesn't work at a frenetic pace, saying, I've got to go heal all these people. I've got to make sure I get to this town. I'm going to get up early tomorrow morning to get there, make sure I'm on time, make sure everybody can come and see me. No, instead, he leaves the people alone. Don't you find that curious? Besides, you know, he needs the strength, of course, to pray more and more because conflicts are going to start coming very soon in his ministry, and he's going to have to face them. Well, a number of years ago, I was uh, reading some letters of Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, and based upon this passage, he understood quite a bit and how he applied it to his own ministry. In fact, quoting from him, he says, when he was asked about a particular day that he had a lot of work to do, he said, work, work from early to late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Ah, ever done that? Well, I actually took up the Luther challenge once. Of course, I don't do this all the time. Who has time for that? But anyway, so, so about 28 years ago, so pretty recently, when I first started ministry, there was this particular day that was an impossible day of ministry because the senior pastor had resigned, and I had to do my very first funeral, and it was a, a public tragedy in the community. I mean, hundreds of people came to it. And, of course, then I still had to do my own job, you know, overseeing all the ministries in the church, and I didn't know what to do. So I was reading this, and I figured, well, I'll see if Luther's right. And so I actually took him up on it, set my watch, and prayed for three hours before I even started anything. And what do you know? It worked. It was an amazing thing. God met us, met me, and there was so much uh, wonderful ministry that was done that day. And so this reflection, following the example of Luke 5.16, and that one experience, reading Martin Luther's letters and following his advice that one time, um, changed the way I approach prayer, changed the way I approach work, changed the way I approach ministry. I'm still learning, of course, and I don't spend, just so you know, I don't spend three hours a day in prayer. But I would encourage you to take the Luther challenge if you're up for it, uh, based upon this passage in, in Luke chapter 5. Do it someday. I guarantee you, God will meet you, and you'll have a wonderful day of ministry. Well, Jesus cleansed this leper of leprosy and sin, and this will become even more clear as we finish our passage this morning. But the parallel between leprosy as a dreaded disease and our sinful condition as natural sinful human beings should be quite obvious. Uh, it's usually one of the first places we go. The people of God have seen this historically in the church, this parallel. I mean, we're all lepers in this sense. If we could only see ourselves the way we truly are. Leprosy was a horrific dreaded disease, and it's a visible expression, really, of the wretchedness of sin and what it does to a soul and a life. It's a very good picture of being totally infected with sin because we talk about total depravity. It's a very good picture of, of being in a position where you're unable to do anything about your corruption. You can't get rid of it. And it's a really good picture of the fact that we live our lives naturally, really, under God's judgment. 
We're left alive, but we're really walking spiritual dead people. And so when we think about leprosy, we shouldn't just simply be thinking of some ancient disease or a disease that's somewhere remote in in East Asia and far off places, but we should think about ourselves because it's quite an accurate portrayal of who we naturally are. But also notice that if you believe like the leper in our story, that you're unworthy of healing, but also see that Jesus is more than willing to heal and wants to heal you, and you fall down and plead for mercy, he will save your soul from sin and cleanse you. Jesus is able and willing to cleanse all of those who sense their need and come to him for spiritual healing. Make no mistake, though, about it, this is exactly where this story is headed, and that's why it's paired up with the next story. It's combined to make this point that salvation and cleansing and leprosy, that all of these images go together, and we are to glorify God with joy and amazement that Jesus has the authority to cleanse us from our sin, to heal us is what that means, to restore us, to make us whole, and then to forgive us of our sins. And that's the next story, the second story with Jesus and this paralytic, and he forgives his sin. So this is also a very fascinating story that so many of us love, and Most of us know the story as it's told by Mark and his gospel, but this morning we're looking at the way Luke tells the story of the healing of the paralytic. Well, the beginning of the story, Jesus patiently collects his audience, making sure that everyone he wants is in that room. And then he speaks and acts as the Son of Man and finally sends people away giving glory to God. So the story begins in verses 17 through 19. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed, through the tiles, into the midst, before Jesus. So, you notice so far in the Gospel of Luke, hopefully you go back and review frequently, you saw we've seen Jesus teaching in synagogues in chapter 4. We've seen Jesus teaching out in the open in chapter 5. Well, now we see Jesus even teaching in homes. And he's beginning to attract serious attention as he begins his public ministry. It's not been that long he's been doing this. And here is our first look at the opposition that is starting to come together against Jesus. And we'll learn more about this group as as time goes on in the gospel here. But we'll learn much more about them. You can look it up in your own Bible dictionary if you want. But the the Pharisees are a religious and political sect, okay, who sought to maintain faithfulness to Moses. I mean, that's the nice way of saying it. And there were about, uh, estimates range, there were about 6,000 members of the Pharisee sect at this time. So it's a pretty extensive uh, religious and political group of people, group of men. And they probably had the roots in the Maccabean Revolt, which would have been in the 2nd century B.C., and they were not priests, and this is important to realize, they were actually lay people. So they were lay leaders, and they worked to really tirelessly to contextualize the Torah and tradition. 
to make it applicable, the law and the tradition in the lives of people. So all of that is well and good, but we also know, because Pharisee is not a nice term to call somebody these days, um, but we also know that many of them had fallen into legalism and hypocrisy at this time, and so they really actually ended up hurting people, not helping people in their faithfulness to God. Strange how that works. Then there's the teachers of the law. These are also known as the scribes. And some of these might have also been members, actually, of the Pharisaical party, but they were more of the scholarly experts. They were dedicated to recording the traditions for future generations. They were teachers of the law um, and, uh, and experts in it of what it all means. So this group of leaders we see are coming from all over, notice, all over to come and hear Jesus, from Galilee, from Judea, even from Jerusalem. And for many of them, it was probably their first time hearing Jesus in person just for themselves. And it shows the extent of Jesus' popularity. And as you read the gospel writers, you'll also notice they love irony. Well, here is Luke's irony, perhaps. All these teachers show up because they're the ones that have to learn from Jesus. Jesus is the one who would be teaching. And Luke also notices that here and tells us, notes that the power of the Lord was with Jesus for healing. So don't miss the implication. That means he wasn't with those scribes and Pharisees for healing. Jesus' authority and power is from God, just as Peter would preach in Acts 10, when he said, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Simply put, the Holy Spirit was present with the Lord Jesus to perform healings. So, Jesus is gathering this crowd for a spectacular self-revelation that he's going to make in a moment. It's all been planned by him. And so you think about what we have in the story so far. We've got this crowded house that's packed. There's no more room, standing room only. And you've got all these religious leaders that are gathered in here as well. And then you got Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. So what do you think is going to happen next? So in the Gospel of Mark, we know that there are four men and they show up with their friend who's paralyzed. He can't get into the house. And people are probably even standing outside the house all around trying to get what they can and listening to Jesus. So they head up the stairs on the outside of the building, which is the way they were built, and go up to the roof and start digging through the roof. And you have to consider these men had a lot of resolve, a lot of courage, a lot of faith. Jesus is going to point that out. And they show up by their action, actions and what they do. And so they remove the tiles from the roof or lumps of clay, and they lower their friend right down in front of Jesus, in front of the crowd, in front of the religious leaders. So now what's going to happen? So we read next, starting in verse 20, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus immediately takes note of the faith of these men, all five of them, 
And he was certainly aware of everybody who's in the audience and is watching him. And he pronounces that the paralytic's sins are forgiven. The paralytic is certainly a sinner, like we all are. Maybe his situation is due to sin, we have no idea. But again, just like in the story we already read, most likely it's just a part of living in a fallen world. Now, this is certainly not what anyone expected, especially the paralytic. Realize in the story, he's still lying there on the bed. It's like, why did we show up? He went there for healing, and he's still paralyzed. So, in this story, we'll often see, as Luke tells them, that faith and Jesus' miracles and forgiveness of sins, they're often intertwined in so many of these stories because they bring together the reality that we read about this morning in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Anyway, what Jesus just announced is the whole purpose of his ministry as the Son of God incarnate, to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Now, the scribes and Pharisees begin reasoning, probably within their own hearts and a little bit amongst themselves, about, well, who is Jesus really and who is Jesus not? And should we be considering this blasphemy or not? Because usually in order for it to be blasphemy, it has to be a little bit more overt. I mean, Jesus had not directly defiled the name of the Lord, but clearly he was taking divine prerogatives to himself. And he certainly wasn't a recognized prophet, so how could he even announce such a thing? And surely being a rabbi, he would know that the punishment for blasphemy would be death by stoning. But Jesus, being very perceptive of their thoughts, perhaps here by divine knowledge, he addresses their secret reasoning and he puts them on the horns of a dilemma. So which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Now actually, both are easy to say and impossible to do. Jesus already said and did the first, and he's going to say and do the second. It's a great question. Everyone would remember this question, and they would discuss this question for years to come. In fact, here we are today, 2,000 years later, still discussing this question. Some think that Jesus is responding to the skeptic. Uh, North Americans are typically fall into this category. That Jesus is responding to the skeptic who thinks it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, and that's because there's no way to tell whether or not it actually happened empirically. Whereas healing is observable, and so in order to say rise and walk, you're sort of stuck because you better do it. And so the observable healing then in our story substantiates the unobservable claim to forgive sins. That's one way to interpret it. A second way, others suggest that Jesus was responding to the reasoning of the leaders, that only God can forgive sins, so it's actually easier to say, rise and walk. Now, granted, it's not easy to do, but it's easier to say that because you wouldn't dare take God's prerogatives and say you can forgive sins. But Jesus claims to be able and to do the harder, which is your sins are forgiven. And so then he proves his claim to the harder of the two things by doing the easier thing, which is healing someone. Well, Jesus' whole point here is that both are from God, and both are impossible without God. 
And so he then goes ahead and he commands, rise and walk, claiming the authority of God for himself. And he calls himself by that title that would become his favorite self-designation in the gospel accounts, and that is that he is the Son of Man. Now, we'll talk a lot more about this later because it's going to be repeated in the gospel account frequently, but the Son of Man is a figure from the Old Testament. From, it's a figure of divinity. It's a figure of eschatological judgment from the prophecy of Daniel. And so we read in Daniel 7, 13 and following, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. But strangely here, Jesus is linking and extending the ministry of the Son of Man and his authority to actually forgive sin. And he's going to be purposefully leaving everybody in confusion by what he said. There's often a strategy that Jesus used is to leave people in confusion. And so, and that's a really good plan because people are going to think, people are going to talk, people are going to have to look at Scripture and figure it out. At least it's a good plan for now. Later on, he's going to make things even clearer to them. But he's purposefully identifying then himself with this figure. He is the Son of Man, and he's come as the judge to the earth. And so he started this great work that the prophecy speaks of, of bringing judgment, of coming in the authority and power of God. But he's also claiming that he started a great work of forgiveness as well. And that's more to the point here. Now, when we finish the book of Luke, we'll come to know that his ministry to rescue us from our sin would involve his cross on the pavement. It would involve his resurrection. It would involve his exaltation. And then we're told to proclaim the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth until he returns in glory and he finishes the work of the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. Well, then finally in verses 25 to 26, Jesus causes glory to be given to God. He says, and immediately he, that the paralytic, rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So the paralytic did exactly what he was told. He got up, took a stretcher, went home. And he did one more thing. He was glorifying God on all the way home. And as we'll see in Luke, Luke ties joy and worship in the context of, in the context of faith for salvation in Jesus frequently. And that's because that's our experience. That's what happens to us when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation, is that joy comes welling up within us, and all we want to do is worship Jesus for who He is. That's a sign that someone's been saved. And that's why we're here today, because we're joyful, worshipful people, because Jesus has saved us from our sins. Now, the people, in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, as we learned from Matthew's account, they also begin glorifying God. And notice the word again, I pointed it out before, amazed. Here it is again in Luke. Everybody in Luke so far, except these scribes and Pharisees, are amazed at Jesus in a positive way. The people were also fearful, notice the word awe, and because they're sensing they are in the presence of God of what they've just seen, and they've seen remarkable things that they're still processing. They'd seen a miraculous healing. 
but they've also seen the forgiveness of somebody's sins. And they've also seen an amazing contest between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. And so they're going home wondering, who is this Jesus? Well, we see from our story that Jesus heals a paralytic and he forgives him of his sin. And notice the last word in our passage, both in the English and, of course, the Greek, which is important. The last word is today. And this is purposeful. We pointed this out before, back in Jesus speaking uh, in the synagogue in Nazareth when he uses the word today, because it's often used, especially in Luke, as a way of referencing the timeless now, today. Every day you see is a day of salvation. In other words, Luke wants us to read this passage as though today, September 19, 2021, is the day of yet another salvation offer in Jesus Christ to many people. Would you believe in him who can cleanse a leper and raise a paralytic? Would you believe in him who can pronounce the forgiveness of sins and they're forgiven? Forgiveness of sin is our greatest need, not healing of our bodies. Although we're going to get that at the resurrection, 100%. But we're to glorify God with joy and amazement at Jesus' authority to cleanse us from our sin and to forgive us of our sins. So who is this Jesus? He's not just a teacher or a healer but the one who actually forgives sin. And that's important because it's really easy to get confused if we only focus on those amazing signs that we see, that we might think those are the most important things. But the most important thing is he's the one who forgives sins. And both stories teach this. And they're tied very closely together, not just in Luke, but the way Mark presents them and the way Matthew presents them. It's the purpose of retelling what Jesus did historically. And just as you can see the historic reality of these healings, and you can see the intentional illustration they are meant to be of the difference between being trapped in a sinful condition and being brought into a condition of salvation. Jesus cleanses us of the leprosy of sin, inside and out, restoring us to wholeness in the true community. I mean, another way to talk about ourselves is that we're basically a colony of lepers who've been healed. That's who we are. Jesus heals us from the paralysis of sin, forgiving and freeing us and giving us joy in God. And surely our response then is to glorify Him, like the people in our passage, with joy and amazement that Jesus has the authority to do this. The cleansed leper and the healed paralytic they glorified God and they told their stories to other people. Did you notice that? They told everyone that they met. When was the last time you told your story about the core of God's working in your life in Jesus Christ? And realize that there's nothing stopping you but you. I mean, there are plenty of people around out there who would love to hear stories and would love to listen. And it's important that when we do tell our stories, that we tell the core of that story of God working salvation in our soul because we don't want people to be confused that it's just about the outward blessings. Oh, surely there are many of those, and those are part of our story as we tell what God has done in our life and He's been gracious to us and how He might have used that to bring us to Himself. Or maybe it was after we put our faith in Christ, God started doing these amazing things in our lives. But we want to make sure we tell people about the core of how they can be saved 
and their sins can be forgiven, and they can be cleansed. There's a lot of miraculous healing in these two stories. But we know that the core of Luke's recounting is all about forgiveness, which we read in verse 20, and we read in verse 24, when Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins. So keep this in mind so that you can keep in proper proportion your own story, your salvation story as you tell it to others. People really need to hear about the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how this brings forgiveness of sin and cleansing from sin. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing authority that you have to simply pronounce that we're cleaned, that we're forgiven, all based upon your work on the cross where you took upon yourself the fullness of our sin, and not just ours, but of people all around the globe. It's just too wonderful to even recount the liberating aspect that we get to experience and the blessing of our salvation, being freed from sin's power in our life, its grip on our souls, being cleansed from the shame that sin brings into our life and the constant uh, harassment that we get from it, and to know that ultimately because of you, um, we're no longer guilty before God our Father because you've clothed us with your very righteousness. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that we now stand before you and before God our Father right because of you. And we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that you would make what we experience in salvation an ongoing reality in our lives so that we're filled with joy every single day and we want to love and serve the Lord God and we want to hate and fight against sin. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, for your glory in your church. Amen. In response to the sermon, please stand and sing with us, Isn't the Name of Jesus Wonderful? Thank you.